for listening and enjoy. This is what Brooklyn sounds like. Hey, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And I'm Dr. Lisa. How you doing? Uh, you know me. I'm a self-proclaimed psychotherapist. You know the, you know that, you know the deal. It's just basically a license for me to just ask people really intrusive things. Uh, so anyway, uh, and people are so generous with me, especially my guest today, David Cody. And, uh, he's a very, 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 very well accomplished music, um, uh, I mean, theater critic, but he's, uh, We'll get into it in a minute. There's just too much. So I just want to um, thank you for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn and tuning into Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. As you know, I want to remind you, okay, how great Radio Free Brooklyn is. It's great. I have to say, it is, it's an amazing organization. Uh, run. It's, it's an all-volunteer organization, which a lot of people don't know. And we are always looking for donations because uh, we're not getting paid, and we have to keep the lights on. Can you imagine? So we're all really committed, and you should help us out, I think, because we're, we're putting this out. We're putting something really great out in the world for all of you. So go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, and uh, you could go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org, donate. And we have everything that's going to interest you, even if you don't even if you don't like my show, there's so many shows. There's every kind of music, every kind of talk, comedy, politics, sports, you name it. We've got people who are wackier than me. Yeah, listen to Art Scene, Art Star Scene Radio. That'll, that'll, somebody, oh, I'm not going to get into it now. Um, but anyway, so back to David. So um, David Cody um, is... What it was the longest running theater critic for Time Out New York, and I am well aware of all of David's body of work, particularly, well, certainly in Time Out, and now I'm learning about it in other places too. And uh, David has really, I think, um, if somebody could, David, you should write a book on the history of New York theater, I think. Have you thought about it? Well, I mean, certainly from like, you know, the 90s to the present day would be an interesting period. That's when I came into it. You know? Yeah. So da- David knows more about it than anybody. He really does. I believe that. So I'm going to read you. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to read you a little bit of his bio and a little bit of his personal history. And then we're going to get into it. Um, so anyway, uh, here's his bio. It's way too, it, there's, okay, look. David is incredibly, I'm, this is me talking, all right? This isn't the bio yet. David is incredibly accomplished, all right? So he has written uh, criticism in theater for like a billion publications. He's written librettos, plays. He's been an actor. So I, I'm not going to, do you want to, do you want me to spend the whole hour talking about his bio? Cause I could, but it's going to be fucking boring to everybody. I think even David, would that be boring to you? Oh, okay. I'm getting my wallet out. I'm donating some money here. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your donation. He's also really humble, which is so cool. Um, uh, um, but anyway, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. He's in here. I'm just going to read, read the highlights. New York city based theater critic, playwright and opera, Operated liberist who has written for numerous public New York Times, Guardian, Observer, Time Out, New York. 
previously authored popular companion books about the hit Broadway musicals Wicked, Jersey Boys, Spring Awakening. Past life as an actor, he worked with Richard Foreman, Foreman, who's very famous also, Richard Maxwell, and uh, Iranian exile author. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that name. Ashur Banipal Babila. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, have you been to Iran? No, I haven't. But you know, I was hanging out with a lot of Iranians in the 90s, that's for sure. Um, there you go. Yeah, no, he was an amazing, amazing. I, was, I would say he was like the Charles Ludlam of Persia in, in some way. Oh, you know? really? Yeah. Wow. Well, see, when I, and so anyway, so here's the things that, you sh- that we need to both, that we all need to follow up on. First of all, his website is David Cody. David, C-O-T-E dot com. That's one word. And then he also recently, in October, a book came out um, by a famous, which publisher was that? Uh, Rizzoli put, put it out. Yeah. You know, that's a big deal. Big deal. Big coffee table book on Moulin Rouge, the musical story of Broadway, of the Broadway spectacular uh, author David Cody, forward by Baz Luhrmann. Okay, guys. This guy knows the, what the fuck he's doing, and here's here's a little like here's a little teaser about the book. You should buy the book. It's expensive. Great gift. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's for you know it's for the fans. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's a beautiful coffee table book. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, um, glittering backstage past Moulin Rouge, the musical and its journey to Broadway with contributions from cast and crew, interviews with Baz Luhrmann, Karen Martin, chronicle of its triumphant. 2021 return. Okay. So that's David's professional life in a nutshell, in a half of a nutshell. Uh, here's, I'm going to like tell you a little bit about his personal life and then we're going to, we're going to get into it. So, so do you know what David was? He, first of all, I did not know this until I did this research. He was adopted, um, which I did not know. And he, a successful, successful example. Well, he's certainly a success. A successful example of an adopted kid is a good thing. No, no, I'm yeah, I'm not in prison or anything like that. <laughs> so he was born in Belknap County, New Hampshire, which is uh, has only three thousand nine hundred forty-five people, and it's also the place that was rumored to be the location for the novel Peyton Place, which I think is so awesome. Um, another note I want to make, which we may discuss later, is that um, David was married in 2011 to um, the love of his life, which he does not hide in saying, Catherine Kilgren, who um, was a very, very well-known voice actor, audible, you know, like the top of the line, and Unfortunately, she passed away in 2018. So, David, what what else did I miss? Anything? Is there anything else that we should have gone into? Or <laughs> no, I mean, you know, professional and personal sides. Um, uh, no, I mean, those are those are sort of like the that's the sketch of my life, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> in less than five minutes, your yeah. your entire life can be summed up. Yeah. No, but um. So let's talk a little bit about where you are now. So you're not, you're, you're, you're in the, what are you work, working on? And mm-hmm. work seems like it's the focus of your life, is it pretty much? Yeah, no, I've, uh, well, without, without work, I wouldn't really have much structure in my life. So I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I it's, 
it's a lot of stuff, but it's also it's basically all writing and it's all theater. Whether it's you know libretti for opera or it's plays, or I'm re- reviewing stuff on Broadway or off. Um, you know, I get paid to write, which is really wonderful. Um, because I have like 22 years or so of being a theater critic, uh, you know, being a playwright for the past, whatever, 14 or so has been, it's been an interesting sort of balance because you can't exactly, you know, you know, you can't take a play to a theater that you review regularly and say, Hey, would you read my play to produce? Right, right, right. Oh, it's sort of like being an artist and a a and a curator or a critic. Yeah. I mean, probably yeah. even, yeah. So obviously I try to avoid any conflict of interest and uh, I've had more luck getting, um, you know, opera produced over the past, you know, several years. Mm-hmm. So, and that's an interesting, always an interesting process because you're working with a composer who's setting your words to music and you're working with a director and, you know, I've, so I've had stuff produced in Cincinnati and uh, Nashville and in stuff in New York and that's been really, you know, wonderful. Mm-hmm. So I always say, like, I started as an artist, you know, as an actor, and then I sort of became a critic. I went over to the dark side. And then somewhere in the, after eight years of being a critic, I was like, you know, I really want to do something creative again. Mm-hmm. So then, I, But I didn't really want to act because even though I loved acting, I just didn't, you know, I, I was, didn't, I didn't really, it wasn't really where I, where I wanted to put my well, energy well right? acting unless you're the writer also is more of an interpretive art right that's really interesting because i because uh i've always thought and this people can argue with this completely and it's not a black and white situation but there are generative artists and there are interpretive artists you know, who's who you know like a, a playwright is a generative artist right they write right. they write it is a director then a generative artist or are they interpreting are the actors are the designers generative artists or interpretive artists I don't know. That's a, that is an interesting yeah. that is an interesting rabbit yeah. hole. And where are critics? Critics are just parasites. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm kidding. Um, no, critics have. Um, it's really interesting because I think the role of critic is very varied. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be like I. I have a quote. Oh no, you quoted. I have this quote here that I wrote mm-hmm. down. Let me see. Let me see. I could, give me give me a second. You you quoted somebody else who said something like the um, that the quote. You're going to know this. Uh, as somebody who um, finds things missing in the play. I, a good critic, Tynan, you, mm-hmm. you quoted Tynan, I don't know who that is. A good critic is able to articulate what's happening in the scene, but a great critic sees what's missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of different roles for critics. Absolutely. I mean, when I say we're just, you know, horrible, vampiric parasites, I'm just joking because that's just a little bit of what we are. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I've spent too many years to have a simplistic view of what a critic mm-hmm. is. I mean, um, you know, I, I always say people who don't see the don't see the importance of critics or criticism in culture, they don't understand the importance of art and culture. Yeah, right, you can't have one. Right, we can't have right. one without the other. So, do you consider being a critic, not a critic, but do you consider what you're doing now? Do you consider acting a generative or a a uh, interpretive art? I don't know. If you're improvising from scratch, I guess you could say it's a generative act um, of of creation. Whereas if you're, but uh, I don't think I don't think uh, acting or certainly comedy, which is what I'm more familiar, I have more familiarity with. Uh, when I see like improv, I mean, there's some of it's. I like. I mean, I'm not putting it down, but I I see that as the sketch for a sketch. Mm-hmm. I don't consider that finished art. No, but if you if you spend 
it, whether you're alone or with somebody else, if you improvise a, a, a scene, let's say it's 20 minutes, whether it's funny or not, or what's serious or whatever the mood of it is, and you record it and you transcribe it, and then you play with it on the page, you know, on your computer or whatever, and you expand it. Yeah. Right, but then it's still like when I'm saying a sketch for something finished. Yeah, but I mean, but generating something out of yeah, out, you're generating something through improv out of nothing, which I think is the is the the point. Yeah, um, you're generating, but it's a it's a, but then you're talking about it to me as a um, a a vehicle for generating ideas, not for creating a finished piece of work. Yeah, I mean, it's a step. Like, like if I want to write a play about, you know, a, a radio talk show situation, I might start, you know, saying just jotting down random things that the the, the radio host says, or the guest says, and I don't know what connection they have. And when I get enough of these fragments, I might sit down and say, okay, let me put them in order. But you know, that's all part of the process. So you know, yeah. But so, how do you find what you're working on now creatively satisfying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm working on a, a libretto um, for a, a chamber opera for four four characters about uh, the subject is basically dementia and music therapy. Wow! Yeah. So the main one of the main characters is a is a, an, a, an elderly. I guess you say she's like eighty composer who's on in the early early stages of you know Alzheimer's or dementia. And um, a young clarinetist comes to visit her as a sort of music therapy program. Mm -hmm. And so you learn, it's about learning, it's a character driven piece. So you mm -hmm. learn about these people's histories and mm -hmm. everybody's, it's called lucidity and everybody's sort of struggling for more light and clarity in their life. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did you research, uh, mm -hmm. have you had to research dementia and stuff like that? Yeah. Dementia and uh, Alzheimer's and, and, you know, music therapy is a really burgeoning field. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering if um, there's more creative freedom in opera now because it's sort of been ignored in that it's not as commercial as regular theater. Do, mm -hmm. you, do you think there's more? People have a passion. People that are passionate about opera have a real passion for it, for sure. Um, but I'm wondering if there's good opportunities as a creative person. Oh, absolutely. I mean, opera is a weird, weird scene. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, I don't know if you saw the news recently, but the the Met, uh, they've been having having great trouble filling the house for the classics, you know, like Don Carlo last season and um, uh, other big, big repertory classic operas are not selling out. Yet the new stuff like Akhenaten by Philip Glass and The Hours, the new operas are are doing really well. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's so interesting. So there's maybe a more of a market at the Met, which is a very traditional house for new opera, which is exciting. Oh. But here's the thing, though. The opera audiences are so weird. They're like, you have some audience, you have some opera goers who are like super knowledgeable about the repertoire from like 1600 to like 1900. And they know the great performances, the great right. operas, Wagner, Verdi, Mozart, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, they sort of act like opera kind of died in 1900. Yeah. And, and should have. That's my impression. Yeah. So you have these people who are like, well, I don't really like that new stuff. And so you can't, uh, you can't make them like, <clears throat> you can't make them like new opera if they're really in love with the, the standard repertoire. But it's like, it's a sort of, so whether there's an audience for that, we'll see. Uh -huh. that's, the, that's the issue. But, well, I mean, the, the, but in theater, though, if you had that kind of division in theater, then you'd be encountering snobs all the time who are like, well, you know, I really like Shakespeare, but, you know, I'm not so crazy about modern 
plays, mm. which, would be, which would be an idiotic position to take, mm. you know. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I could see, I could see how um, there could be the 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 things that you're talking about with four characters instead of like a whole huge cast sounds a lot more potentially accessible to people, like where you don't have to spend like a thousand dollars because you whatever it is. That's a good point. But also, yeah. you know, I mean, look, I'd love a chance to sh- uh, shot at a grand opera. <laughs> you know, whatever that well, means in 2023. Well, maybe, you know? maybe. You know? well, also, Could audience, happen. I mean, and also like people go to the theater for, yeah, they go for intimacy, but they also go for spectacle. True. So, I mean, uh, you know, something that's bigger than their screen. Right, you know? right, right, right. So let's go. You um, let's let's go to New Hampshire. Let's go to New Hampshire and find no. out what happened there. <laughs> so you were you were adopted. Um, now being adopted can mean a lot of things. Did you? So you, how did you grow up? You, it was a small town, right? Yeah, like a town of uh, a town of Gilmanton, uh, Iron Works, uh, population like two thousand or so. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Um I mean I'm, I was I was born in Manchester, which is the, the major city in but I moved there when I was like three or four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how old were you when you were adopted? Uh just an infant, a few a few months old. Mm-hmm. And did you have brothers and sisters? I have uh one sister who's adopted from a, a different family, so as I always say, no one in my family is really related. <laughs> I love that. So what was that like? Like, did you have an awareness that you were adopted? Is your sister older or younger? Uh, she's two and a half years older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I have this memory when I was about three, and I don't know why I asked my parents about it, but I ha- they asked them something, you know, along those lines. And they told me, they sort of explained it to me very gently and... So it's in a, in a way, I mean, it's not. It, there was no traumatic discovery of my adoption in papers in the attic or anything like that. It was just like something I grew up knowing, and it, I think its significance only increased as I became more of a teenager and and young you know, mm-hmm. adult. So mm-hmm. that's when I used it for better or worse as a sort of explanation for why I was having certain negative or conflicted feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. What what. So you knew you were adopted, and your sister knew that she was adopted. And how did your your parents acted like that was normal, or they didn't make a thing out of it? Yeah, I mean, it was never like, yeah, it was never a, uh, it's never a weapon. Yeah, you know, in, yeah. The, in the household, um, it was just sort of a fact of life, and you know, and I don't think like there was never. I don't remember any drama of like you're not really my parents. You know? <laughs> you're not. You're not real. I mean, that that stuff would come later as my imagination sort of fixed on, like I say, fixed on the fact yeah. of adoption as a kind of, you know, what's real and what's what's imaginary and what's useful and interesting and true are very confused in my head. Ah, ah, because it's sort of funny, isn't it? You're sort of living a. I never thought of it this way, but when you're adopted, you're sort of living, I hate to say this, a lie in a way, not a lie, but you're presenting, you're presenting your world. People superficially take it for something that it isn't, right? They think like, but then you could also get into, well, what does it mean if you're somebody's child? Well, I mean, what did Freud call the romance of, oh gosh, I know, I should know this, but this this phenomenon that he noticed that kids fantasize that their real parents are like royalty in a foreign country or something like that. Oh, really? Yeah, like they have they they are they were kidnapped, and so mm-hmm. uh, 
they 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 have a romance a romantic notion of their origin that it, that it lies somewhere else, and you know. But when you're adopted, that can actually be real in some way. Mm-hmm. You're like, yeah. And also, like, what was I? Who was I supposed to be that I that I am not now? You know? Right. Like, if you would. So did you did you feel like um, did you feel did you feel like you were adopted or did your parents just feel did it feel like normal? You know, or like, mm-hmm. did you have a where? Well, you said you you knew about it, but it wasn't front and center until you became a teenager. So, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I won't. Yeah, I, 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 it was not. It was a, you know, it was a, it was a it, pretty, it was a pretty settled, you know, um, even though it was, it was a small town, it was a like suburban house, suburban lifestyle, I guess. Did, did your did the kids at school know you were adopted? I think so because I think I talked about it somewhat, but I don't. It was never like a weird Listen thing. Wasn't a thing. Yeah. So, did you feel like you fit in with your parents? Not really, no. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I at the age of like ten, I was like, I want to get out of this friggin' town and live in the city. Uh, I, 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 you know, I watched a lot of TV. I just, I think I, 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 I culture, literature, poetry, Shakespeare. Um, stuff on PBS, really British TV, that kind of thing, really fascinated me and made me want mm-hmm. to get away from everything. And they were not terribly cultured people, so I think I established. Uh, I think I, I went through a lot of reaction formation as a kid, where which is you know where you're basically like I'm going to be anything that you're not. Ah, uh, you know? uh. So resentment, uh, a certain amount of snobbery, a certain amount of dislike and contempt. Uh-huh. Be- became sort of part of my personality. Well, they were frustrating for you, right? They yeah, didn't. Well, because emotionally, I was just not getting the signals that I wanted. Were they? They weren't supportive and nurturing and loving enough. No, were they? Were they? Like, what do you mean? Like, what were you missing? Like, um, were they not? Like, did they not hug you? Did they not take interest in you? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, it wasn't like a total. Emotional deprivation chamber, uh-huh. but it was kind of a yeah. slight wire mother situation. If you know the infamous experiments from the sixties, the wire mother. Oh, with the yeah. What is his name? Oh, with the babies. Yeah, the monkey babies. The monkey babies. Yeah. So um, we'll look that up. I'll put it in the notes for you guys. Yeah. So, um, what, what, what did they do? Like, what were they like? What did their What did they do for a living? Your parents. Um, okay, my dad was worked for the IRS. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so he was a totally, uh, and he was a, and he, and he, uh, he was, so he was a treasury agent. He had a gun and a badge. Wow. Yeah. And he, and he didn't early in his career, of course he hated it, auditing people who, you know, he, he was, he was a decent man. He hated auditing people who were like poor or couldn't afford their taxes. Yeah. So that early work that he didn't, when he was whatever early in his career, he hated, but he was a treasury agent doing, you know, <laughs> good things, I guess. Yeah. Busting, you know, real tax so he went to work. Yeah. Had an office job. My mother was a homemaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she, and I think she had some artistic uh, ambitions mm-hmm. that really weren't that fulfilled. Mm-hmm. But, and uh, one a decent, both good, decent Catholic, upstanding Catholic. people. Catholic. Catholic. Catholic was Catholic. the capital C in your family? Yeah, Catholic. Ah, Catholic. French Canadian Catholics. Ah. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because you sat, seem to have a really innate hunger for intellectual stimulation like as a kid like you studied i i don't know you studied shakespeare you started studying shakespeare pretty young right 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I, 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 there's a group of friends in high school. I mean, in 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 um, middle school, then in, definitely in high school, that we sort of encourage each other. So it was a, a group of geeks, you know, who, yeah. were, who were into literature and theater and you know music at the REM and you know, right. So uh, yeah, we were that was very important having that peer uh-huh. that peer group, um, which is a it was you know we were all sort of different sorts of people, but. Yeah, so there was AP English and AP this and that, AP European history. So yeah, those were important classes to to feed those those appetites. You were interested. It yeah. wasn't about the grades. You were, I mean, it wasn't yeah. just about the grades. You had a real. That's what I'm saying. Real hunger for that. Mm-hmm. So, and your parents didn't introduce you to that stuff. You really went and got it on your own. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's weird. <laughs> I mean. I guess. I mean, I just watched a lot of TV as a kid. I watched a lot of PBS. No, I, I find it really interesting because those, like, learning Shakespeare on your own, like, I think, I don't know, my my impression is that most people are brought to Shakespeare by school or something else, and then they're like, this is cool, and then they get into it. But I'm wondering if you ever thought, like, you have some kind of intellectual connection, because you don't seem intellectually connected to your parents, and I wonder about genetics, and I wonder if you have any intellectual connection to your birth parents. Have you thought about that more? Where do you, you know, where it comes from? You know, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, over the years, I sort of fantasized about who these people are, you know, I mean, I I thought, well, is my mother like the president of a small liberal arts college in, (laughs) in, in, in Oregon or something? And then I had these weird, stupid fantasies about like maybe my father was like a hippie because I was born in like '69. Yeah. Um, and my mother was like uh, a good Catholic uh, college girl or something. And uh, so the Puritan and the, the Libertine and the Puritan, da, 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 like all these like silly formations of like who my who my parents might have been. Um, uh, as well as you know, there's horror stories too. Like, I mean, come on, you can imagine, uh, you know, like, what if scary. my, yeah, and like, what if mm, there's some horrible crime associated with my birth? Um, well, the unknown of that is huge. Yeah, I mean, do you want? To, I mean, like Edward Albee, who I, you know, I sort of loved finding out that he was adopted, you know, years ago. Um, he made a whole career out of it, out of that existential blank of of his origin, and he never wanted to find out who his oh. his birth parents were. It's- yeah, because it's very rich. Yeah, it's a rich. Yeah, well, so did you, know. you find out? Uh, did you mention that you had found out what your who your birth parents are? Uh, my mother, I found out. She, yeah, so I was adopted through Catholic uh, Charities Organization. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so I got in touch with her like towards the end of two thousand seven, hmm. and we exchanged letters and emails and and talked on the phone. She was in Arizona at the time. I think she's in um, Georgia now. Um, yeah, I mean, she was just <clears throat> a very ordinary person, was not the head of a small liberal arts college, mm-hmm. or she was not a poet or a published mm-hmm. novelist or anything like that. She was a, <clears throat> excuse me, she was, um, she worked in a cardiology company. She had a, another son who was um, like 20 years younger than me, I think, or something like that. And wow, 20 years younger. Yeah. That's. So she, well, she had me when she was in high school. She was like uh, 18. Oh, wow. You know. Wow. So that's yeah. partly why. Yeah. So how did, how was that getting in touch with her? Um, Anticlimatic. Yeah. <laughs> I would say. Yes. And also something about the way that she wrote me, the, the way she wrote her letters and the way that we talked on the phone, the way she wanted to connect, but she was also very, how do I describe this? She was very scattered. Uh-huh. Oh. 
hard to communicate with. Yeah, and hard to get f- straight answers out of. Uh huh. And uh, about my father especially. Um, uh-huh. I don't know who that is. Uh-huh. Um, and she just it was. I had this sense that this is a scattered person, mm. and also like her son was who was much younger than me. Um, <clears throat> so this was around two thousand seven or so. She was sort of encouraging him to join like the air force or something, and it was at a time when we were still at war with uh, you know Iraq. Oh or no! And I'm thinking like, and I know this is like a little over dramatic, but what kind of a mother pushes her son I, into the armed forces? I'm you with know? you 100 yeah. percent on that, a thousand percent. Yeah. So you were like, okay, uh, check mark, I'm done. No, but I mean, yeah. like, what is the? Yeah, I, well, you don't if, have anything in common. If, with- this, if this person had raised me. Would I be, you know, a serial killer? <laughs> you know? No, it doesn't sound like a much better option. It's just really interesting that you um, develop such an intellectually rich life on your own. I give you, you know, for a teenager. So what happened um, when you got to be a teenager? Did you say there was some rebellion there or? Kind of, yeah, all internal. I mean, I didn't, I mean, I was too chicken to like get dye my hair or, no. you know, get a, a nose ring or a tattoo or anything like that. I just was like a, I just, I just like, I seethed inwardly. Well, it sounds like you have a very rich in, inner, inward life, inner that, yeah. life. That's all I have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds really exciting in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I don't know. I just, I, you know, uh, I, yeah, that's all I had. I, well, it's, no, it's, it's a product of anger and anger and cowardice. Basically, cowardice to actually do anything. You know, I, I went through college a virgin, you know. And really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, no, I was scared, scared, angry. So, mm. so, so you, you were not comfortable with girls? No. And have you, I know you mentioned earlier that you've been in therapy. And um, I mean, you're, you're a very personable and, you know, engaging and bright person. I'd, can't imagine, but what? Um, well, where did that come from? What do you think that was about? Your un- being uncomfortable with girls. Um, I mean, all I can imagine is that there wasn't enough um, physical contact between uh, me and my parents growing up, and therefore I didn't really develop any sort of sensual uh, uh, intelligence, if that's a term. Yeah, I can understand that because also. Um, uh, your parents were Catholic, so anything to do with physical touch is like a no-no, big time, right? Mm. I mean, you know, not to generalize, but depending on what your group is, your um, mm-hmm. background is. But we were, you know, and I always thought that being a Catholic in New Hampshire was basically like being a miserable Protestant, you know? Like you know, <laughs> the churches, there wasn't any great art, no cathedrals, you know, no emotionalism. It was just kind of like, you know, miserable Puritanism, basically. Yeah, and you didn't have... Did you have the internet in those days when you were growing up? No, no. So just books. Well, no, but we had VHS tapes, and 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 like my dad knew, <laughs> my dad knew some guy who had like cable in a, in in civilization. So they would they would get us they would tape movies like three movies for us onto a VHS tape, and we'd watch them. And some of them were R rated, so some of them had sex in them. Oh, so I was like, oh, now, there you, know? you go. Yeah, I know. So, I got- so um, you. Um, you went to Bard. Yep, Bard College. And you didn't have any girlfriends there? Well, you know, we don't have to get into it in details. But yes, I basically, you know, I, my world expanded. And um, <clears throat> I, um, yeah, I, I, 
things. But you, but you seem like I'm saying, like you moved to New York, and um, you seem like you've always had a robust social life. Mm-hmm. Just not girls, but robust social life. Yeah, yeah, I had friends. <clears throat> Excuse me, jeez. Um, uh, I'm, I'm must be having like sort of. Oh, am I? Put, well, I'm putting you on. The <laughs> I know. Oh, um, <laughs> got a frog. You made me. Co- you made me too comfortable with you. This is the problem. <clears throat> yes. Um. You know, I had. Yeah, Bard was great. I still have many friends from Bard that I still hang out with. Yeah, and probably friends from high school, I was going to ask yeah. you. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, that sort of went down to one, but yeah. Still. Yeah. So, like, when you started reviewing theater stuff, you must have been, like, pretty popular, right? Did you, like, how did that, like, I imagine as a theater critic for Time Out New York that people wanted to get in front of you, get your attention, did you notice that, or how did that feel when you started doing all that? Well, I mean, that's very, yeah. It was. I would say that my friends who were, like, doing off-off-Broadway theater didn't act, they didn't, like, change, they didn't get weird. They didn't care. No, even though you could say off-off-Broadway has more to gain from, you know, exposure. And uh-huh. even though it's, it's, a, it's a lie that, like, oh, my God, if we gave a positive five-star review to this off-off-Broadway show, it's going to make millions of dollars on yeah, Broadway. right. You know, There's like, not that much at stake. God, no, no. So, yeah, you didn't take – you don't take yourself too seriously. You didn't take that too seriously. No. But, I mean, I did – I guess I did – you know, it's mm-hmm. it's true that when I became a critic, I did, I did have a sense that, you know, somebody I asked about, like, what you know, I consulted about it. They were like, you have to be prepared for people to hate you. And, uh, and I was like, oh, God, um, which maybe on some deep level because of, again, Catholicism, this uh-huh. sort of rocky emotional upbringing, these feelings of energy and excitement and arrogance even, but mm-hmm. matched by feelings of worthlessness or um, taintedness or something. So that, that mix of feelings that I have might have, you know, I think that being a critic was difficult psychologically. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, boo-hoo, I know. No, but, no, uh, but, no. Uh, no, what do you mean, because... Well, because when you are hanging out with friends or other people, you're like, are they my friends, or are oh. they... You know? So not knowing, I think that was all just head games I was playing with myself, but, you know, obviously, you're dealing with publicists all the time, but their, you know, their job is to is to promote their shows. Right. But you know? when you say that's head games that you're dealing with, mm. like, I think that... That's just normal. I don't think anyone. I think that's the head trip of being a critic. I don't think you can ignore that or blame mm-hmm. it or say it's from you. I think it's you know a head game. I think it's put on you. I, th- I don't think you're responsible for no. that. I mean, you know when somebody's being f- friendly and mm-hmm. you know you know when somebody's obviously the the it's a game you play. You know where you're like people are. People are being friendly to you, and they're they're being deferential to you. You get nice seats, you know. But that's right. you know, yeah, um, yeah, um, you know. Right. So, how did you meet your wife? Okay, well, we met at a um, uh, at a holiday party. Um, sh- uh, a friend of mine from hi- from high school actually was working at a, an audiobook uh, company where they, you know, recording studios and all that, and uh, editing suites where they put together audiobooks. And he invited me to this holiday party. I was like a few months out of a like a four year relationship that had ended, mm-hmm. and it was December. And I was like, "Oh, I don't." But he said, "Oh, there's free food and booze." And I'm like, "Okay." So I went, and I don't know. I mean, I I was, we were, it, was it was a nice scene, a lot of nice actors and theater people, and yeah. I mean, when I'm around a lot of theater people, obviously I'm I'm a little like wary because. Again, this whole thing, do, yeah. I, do I fit in? Am I, am I an, inside, an outsider? Or, oh, right. But, you know, mm-hmm. anyway, but that was, that was probably in my mind a little bit. But I don't know. I mean, he, this guy introduced me to Katie, and, you know, she's 
beautiful and she's very uh she she really liked to dress up and things and and we started talking and uh you know i i had met her very briefly at a show a couple of years earlier when i was in a relationship and we talked uh she was we were at the same show i was with um, this friend and we talked during intermission for like two minutes and we i don't think we made much of an impression on each other uh-huh. um anyway but i was started talking to her at this party in in 2008 and I don't know. We're just talking about theater. And we just started, oh, what, what have you seen that you liked? Oh, I like this play by Connor McPherson, this Irish playwright, The Seafarer. Oh, yeah, I saw that. I loved it. Oh, my God. Wasn't it wonderful? And, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, uh, she's, he's one of my favorite playwrights. Oh, yes. And uh, blah, blah, blah. We're talking about theater. And then I was like, uh, you know, I have an extra ticket to the opera. Do you ever go to the opera? Um, you know, it's to Thais. It's this matinee opera. Do you want to go? And she's like, oh, I love going to the opera. And so... And I'm like, how did I, inwardly, I was thinking, how did I ask this woman I just met to the opera? (laughs) It never happens. But it's like, for me, the experience of having somebody really engaged and wanting to talk to me, and it was just... uh, You were taken right away. Yeah. You were taken, like, kind of immediately. Yeah. Yeah. This is somebody I'd been looking for all my life. Wow. Uh, So, Wow. That just gave me the chills. Wow. Wow. That that is, like, that that sounds really... there's a magic in there for yeah. sure, for sure. Yeah, share. I mean, shared cultural interests are you know they're not everything, but they're really important. Well, you know? especially uh, for two people who are so passionate and also so specific. Like there aren't a lot of people that you could have had that conversation with. It's I true. believe it's true. Yeah. And then when I saw her books, you know, I saw her library. She had more books about theater criticism than I did. Really? And I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. Wow, you guys were really wow. You yeah. guys were really wow made. Yeah. Made for each other. Did so? Did she feel the same way? Was it kind of like you guys met and mm-hmm. it was? Well, I mean, she. To be honest, she had. I was on. Um, I was on New York One a lot. Oh yeah. As a theater critic. Right. Which I couldn't fucking excuse my language. Couldn't stand. No, uh, you can say that. Oh, good. You can take fuck. Uh, I couldn't fucking stand looking at myself on TV, oh. you know, because I mean the the weight, the chin, the hair, oh, the, oh, the Jesus fucking you're Christ. great on TV. Well, thank I think. you. I look good in the front. I think um, <laughs> <laughs> we're also critical of ourselves. Oh my god! No, it's you. It's not that other people think that yeah. really. So she sort of she had seen me on TV, and so she oh, uh, so know. she knew who you were. Yeah, and you know, in theater, she oh, of course, even in though even though, even though she's an audiobook person, she did theater a little bit now and then, but she was mostly in, into the audiobook stuff. So yeah, but yeah, I mean, it was just like, yeah, it was it was amazing. This mm-hmm. person that um, I mean, I you know, she was the ideal person for me. You know? And how was that? Uh, the, how was the? How was it when you went to the opera? That opera that must have been incredible. <laughs> it was great. You know, I dressed up a little bit. You know, and she dressed up, and <clears throat> it was um, it was an opera about uh, Thais is about a a courtesan a courtesan. Um, who falls in love with a monk, you know, which is interesting because that's sort of like my fantasy of the uh, the hippie and the Catholic schoolgirl. Um, um, but it was, you know, it was like it was like uh, piety and pleasure. Anyway, I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking aloud. Um, yeah, Katie, um, we had fun. Um, we had, you know, at the intermission, we went, we ran and got some champagne and went to the second floor of the Met where these Chagall. Uh, huge Chagall paintings are hanging up. In the, oh you know. wow, that must have been great! Yeah, she's like, I always like to come here and see them, and you know, one of them is called the Sources of Music, uh-huh. and it's a huge, just wild Chagall painting. Uh-huh. 
And so we had our champagne and talked. And, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm always, you know, we always, you're always sizing yourself, each other up during a date. And of course. I, I had three questions in my head as I was talking to her. First was, how old is she? Mm-hmm. Because I couldn't tell if she was mm-hmm. younger than me or I thought she was younger mm-hmm. than me. Um, and then I was like, uh, where did she go to school? Because when you're with you know, sort of boring, ordinary people. They're like, oh, I went to NYU, or oh, yeah, I, yeah, went, to, yeah. I went to read out in Portland. I went to Yale. Um, and, of course, Yale people will, will tell you that in the first five minutes. Um, but uh, she wasn't talking about colleges. And then I was like, is she religious? Because the, the themes in the opera mm-hmm. talked a little bit about mm-hmm. that. So these were like mysteries to me. And they were all sort of part of her, her personality, it turned mm-hmm. out. Because when well, the age thing, who cares? She was like six months uh-huh. old. But you got to know her. And then did you guys like move in pretty quickly or did the relationship accelerate fairly quickly? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank God. You guys were sort of like a good match and you both knew that. And yeah. you were in your late 30s. So you were both like kind of mature enough to understand the value of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you got married within two years, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and you, you didn't, you weren't like double, you weren't, you had no hesitation, I'm guessing. No. Yeah. You were like, this is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you guys were married for seven years. It must've been really. And, um, yeah, not quite seven years. Yeah. But it must've been a, a really, again, yeah, I can't, I, I, yeah. Um, I don't want to, you know, take, Yeah. is it, how does it feel going back there? I feel like, I feel like I'm curious and I want to talk about it, but I also am really sensitive to that. Like I might be crossing a boundary or upsetting you. I can't help think that. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, um, you know, it's, uh, what can I say? It's grief. It's, uh, um, I, you know, I mean, it's good. I'm talking to you cause I'm between therapists right now. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, you although I have to say you are, are really open about talking about it. And I do think that um, grief, although the level of grief that you've had to deal with is is pretty very young for really to be dealing with the kind of, you're very young to have to be dealing with this. And I think it's something that um, we're all, we're all, you know, if we, I mean, I, we're all, it's a really important part of being human. You know, and you, you've been, you are there, you are there, you, you know, you, you know, the landscape, you know, time and age, I'm a Capricorn. So I think I obsess a lot about time and money and status and time, mm-hmm. you know, wasted time or efficient time. I, th- time and age are really it's things I think about it, especially in regards to Katie, because I mean, I think of it like accordion time. I think like, um, you know, if you know what, not all cancers are the same, but if you know what cancer does to a body um, in the late, the, in, in the end stages, it's 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 uh, it's really horrific, and I mean it's painful. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's and I was her caregiver um, for the last, you know, for the well, the for the whole time, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had this sense that um, we're old; we've become old, and um, mm-hmm. so. Or, or I had the sense that we were, because we met when we were 39, we had no children and we were sort of, and we had never been married, either of us. So we were sort of like, you know, that New York thing where you like hang on to your 20s and your 30s as uh, long as you can. Of course. 
And because work is important and your life is important and happiness. And so we got married and then the th then cancer entered the picture and we became uh, excuse me, very old. Mm -hmm. And um, and then, you know, I'm trying now to sort of um, get on with my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that didn't say that very well. No, you did. Um, does does <clears throat> grief change? Does, did grief change for you? Like in the beginning, it must have been very... I mean, is it different now? And I've read, I, you know, I mean, I know I'll be dealing with this at some point in my life. I just have, I can't, I just have not at this point or whatever. Um, and I wasn't close to my parents. Mm -hmm. So whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm not asking you from a, from a place of experience. Let's put it that way. Um, but I'm just wondering if it changed for you, like if the grief uh, initially, if it feels different now than it did initially. Yeah, I mean, I think there, it was more, um, yeah, it was more ex uh, explosive and and uh, sudden in the in the years afterwards. You know, it would just it would hit you, and you'd have to, you know release. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like now, I mean, I always thought of it as well, you know, rainwater in a well. I always thought of like, you know, you're like, oh, you can, you'd be like, oh, it's been a couple of weeks and I, but then you realize you, it's just filling up. Mm. So, mm -hmm. and the, you know, you have to let, let go after a while because it's just, it's just that well filled up and overflows. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I'm still, you know, I think I'm still, whenever I remember it, it's still very, very sharp. But, um, I guess I'm just I'm just trying to be, I, I I'm more aware of you know that the equilibrium and happiness in my life right now and, mm -hmm. I'm, and I'm able to be grateful for that. Yeah, know? and you have like great uh, what sounds like some great projects. Yeah. So your work it's like in a certain way um your work must be has always been your relief. Your mm -hmm. relief, your save saving And same for Katie. I mean, my god. I mean, she was you diagnosed in 2014 and you know, she did the thing she had, you know, she had, um, she had chemo. She, she, you know, she also had other regimens and when it recurred, um, and when she she would get an operation and she would, you know, or have chemo and she would get back to work and she, you know, she would win some more awards as an audiobook narrator because <laughs> she was fucking amazing. I mean, some of these audiobooks, you know, not to throw shade, but you know, some of them are like monotonous, cold reads. She would do full. If you do, if you like audiobooks and you're listening to this, go get a, a, a Catherine Kelgren audiobook from Audible or somewhere else. I mean, she would do all the characters with full color voices, accents. I mean, she made language alive. Mm. You know, she she's like one of the top award winning. Right? I mean, I was reading mm -hmm. about her as well. She she's like won a crazy amount of awards, right? Isn't she? Yeah. Where, where she's like famous in the canon of audio. Yeah. Books. And she did lots of young adult stuff. Um, she did, you know, pride and prejudice and zombies. Uh, and, you know, mm -hmm. but she also did like, you know, the golden bowl, this humongous, uh, Henry James novel uh -huh. with, with impossible labyrinthine sentences. And she made sense of that. And, um, did you see her working them out? Uh, did she work? Did she like rehearse or how? I don't know. Yeah, the process, she would. She would hang. You... She would hang out and she would have these uh, the the printouts and she'd like highlight the voices and make notes in the in the margins and she would test out things with me. She would, 
you know, ask uh, a classics professor I had at Bard how to pronounce Latin stuff or Greek stuff or whatever. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So she was so meticulous. She, she was a one, it was an incredible solo performance that she would create for these books. Wow. Know? Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you got to witness a lot of that yeah. too. And when I saw her read, like, you know, she, you know, that, that cliche of somebody transforming. Tran- the, yeah. Know, even though she's just reading, you know. But you saw that, huh? Yeah. That must have been amazing. It was. It yeah. Was, she was amazing. So what about your support? You must, I mean, I imagine, you know, that you have a lot of people that want to support you. Is that, do you feel like that? Support it, in what way? Like, like you have friends. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when we went on a date, oh God, this is, Katie was like, so do you have a lot of friends? Because she didn't know anything about my life exactly. And I was just like, huh. And <laughs> she was a little bit like worried. Like, does this guy have no friends? Do you have friends, but you're like, Oh, they're not my friend. I don't know if they're really my friends. No, I have friends. I have friends. I uh-huh. mean, I don't know. How, I don't have like a million friends. But right. I, you yeah. didn't, no, but you have people that like, like, do you feel like I'm saying, I don't get the feeling that you're somebody who's really very alone in the world. No, I have friends. Although I'm thinking, no, I have friends that, you know, mostly theater friends, pe- friends from opera world. Of course. Um, I've made friends in the last few years. Which is always important to stay open to that, to make new friends. Absolutely. You know? But I mean, it's what's really interesting is like, you know, I'm 53 and I'm, you know, um, I don't know, you know, I mean, I'm alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and family is, not, I don't really, I have a family, but I have no, my family. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm just saying that I think the next, like, and like many a Gen Xer who has not spawned or whatever, I have... I have to think about this, about what are my networks in the next 20 years? Like, who are my friends? Are they near me? You know, I mean, mean when you get old, (laughs) when I get old, you know, because on the one hand, I've spent my, I feel like my entire path in life has been one of isolation, Mm -hmm. you know, from a kid, I've been isolated and uh, death has isolated me. Mm-hmm. But I have friends, and I don't want to. I don't. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, do I have to have a commune of friends? Do we? Do oh, you're thinking about like how, like what old age home? <laughs> well, or like, do we all like rent a some? I, you know, I'm. Like, I don't. I think it's going to happen how it happens. I don't think you can. I think you know. Um, well, I'm older. I'm a baby boomer, but I can still see that. You're a baby boomer with the, with the soul of a millennial. Right? Oh well, that's sweet of you. I. I. That's sweet of you. Um, but I think that uh, I think that's all evolving, and uh, you know we're not your parents' old people, and mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think I think it's evolving, and I don't think that I don't think we recognize yet. I think everyone's concerned about that. I you know I don't know. well I've got a stepson, but yeah I'm not counting. Yeah we're we're gonna see what happens, but we don't know yet, and I I don't think that i mean you could still find a partner easy i mean easy, easily i think if at some point you 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 haven't yeah i mean you you must be going on dates or dating or thinking about dating i mean that's not you're t- way too young to like that's not off the table at all i don't think is it um no i've done some dating um yeah and i hate the dating apps they're awful I mean, of course you do. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I guess I'll get some if I get some new photos done or. Oh Jesus! You know, yeah, I don't know photos and, and, and improve. But also, you're such an interesting person, which can't 
possibly come through. That dating apps are not made for interesting no. people. I always say the best dating app technology is having friends, you know, because mm-hmm. a friend of a friend, mm-hmm. I could maybe meet. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm very judgy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm very judgy. Picky. Picky. I'm very judgy. I'm very... And, but, and yet I'm, I'm you know, uh, so it's hard to find. And I, you know, and people are people. Horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and you are you and you have a lot of interests and a rich inner life, obviously. So you don't like you're not going like, who am I going to hang out with? Yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, and I'm lucky to go to the theater this month because, you yeah. know, oh my God, if I had all that free time to myself, I would just, you know, take up heroin or something because. I mean, I, yeah. I I go to the theater. You have, you know, you have a lot of social contacts, so you're not hungry for that. Yeah, no, I'm, well, I either hang out with my friends or I go to stuff. Yeah, you know, right. I, you're not sitting at home by yourself, so yeah. you don't really, you you know, and yeah, no, I mean, and also, I mean, you are still in a very, you know, a healing phase. It just, you know, but I'm, I'm we're talking like. A long way around the down the road, a lot can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I don't think, personally, as a self-proclaimed psychotherapist, I don't think you should be thinking about that. I mean, I don't think. I don't think you can think about it, but I don't think that you have enough information. None of us do at this point, even at my age, to understand what the possibility, what that's going to look like, because society's changing around that and stuff like it's that. It's a big world. There's a lot yeah. of people. So lot- I, I think you should focus on the next five years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, focus on getting my driver's license back. <laughs> Why you lost that? Well, no, I, I, when I, oh, geez, when I moved here like 30 years ago, I, I was like, I'm a New Yorker now. I don't need my New Hampshire driver's license. And of course. Oh, uh, no. Just- oh, no, you got to take a test. Yeah, I'm 17 again or 16 again. Uh, but I mean, I, I, it's not because I'm dying to drive, but I just think it would be good to have that option. It would be good to have it. It would be good to have it. Um, what about, um, so are you still in touch with your parents or what is your relationship with your parents and your sister like now? It's fine. It's fine. I mean, my, my dad my dad passed away the night before 9-11, which is oh, interesting. Oh, God, that's horrible. So I wasn't in the city when it happened. I was up in New Hampshire. Um um, my mom, yeah, my relationship with my mother is, is, is okay. Um, she's, uh, she's a good woman. Good mm-hmm. woman. My sister's, you know, normal person, married, has a couple kids. Um, I'm not. But you don't have that much in common with them. It's really. No, no. Yeah. No. And it's my niece and nephew who work for, uh, big pharma and, uh, and, the, and the military industrial complex uh, respectively, which I think is fascinating. And if anything, it's good for material for, for a novel or something. Right. Um, no, I don't, I'm like, a, so I'm, a, de- I'm a deadbeat uncle basically. So you're like somebody who comes from a family of like, uh, I've talked to people, family of Trump supporters or something. No, no. I mean, they, they may not be Trump no, supporters. No, my mom is, no, my mom is actually, she's read, she's read Michelle Obama's Becoming, which is more than really? I can say. Wow. You know, yeah. That is, so they're not Trump supporters, but they're, you just, you just don't naturally have a lot in common with them. No, no. And, and we're not very uh, demonstrative emotionally. Yeah. Uh, and New Hampshire, yeah, fuck New Hampshire. It's not it's, satisfying. It's, it's not a satisfying relationship. No, but Trump supporting is definitely a, a, a popular thing in New Hampshire, which, if nothing else, growing up right. in New Hampshire will fuel me because I need to write about that fucking state. Right, right, Oh, right. my God. Right, What a right. nightmare. I mean, you know, nice, nice, nice nature, shame about the people, you know? It's just like... Um, uh, but you know you're in, but I mean I guess I'm very much inspired by 
you know, negative stuff, you know. Are you? Sometimes. And yeah, I guess so, because that's where the anger is. So, yeah. so you, you talk about, so anger is something that you, do, how, how are you with anger? Not good. I think. Not good? Where, what happens when you're angry? Or where, what, what's your relationship with your own I, anger? I mean, I think I blame myself and I blame others. I ping pong between that, you know, that sort of like, you know, self, self-loathing sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just like sort of bottomless contempt, mm. you know. For others and then you're, you, yeah, then yeah. them, then you. It's what like about a, forgiveness and compassion? You know, those those. Those are working there. on that? No, I'm working on it. But <laughs> it's not. It's not unknown in my universe. No. Mm-hmm. Do you ever yell at people? No. No, you don't. You don't lose it. No. I uh-huh. just. I just do. I don't know. Yeah, you stew. You're more of a stewer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got to We got to get that self acceptance in there. Um, but you've you've been work. Have you you've been talking about that in therapy? You you have you been in a lot of therapy? You yeah. seem pretty self-aware. Yeah, I mean, and also that's what that's what writing is for, you know. Yeah, it's for, right. It's for because I mean, I'm, I'm like writing. You know, one of the things I keep writing about is as, an, as an, a middle-aged man trying to get through to a younger man, uh, whether he's a son or an adoptive son or a uh, just not not related at all. And there's a, so I'm, I think I'm having a conversation with my younger self all the time. Oh, really? That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Do you write journals as well, or mostly? What no. do you think? You made a fa- he made a face like. Journal writing is corny. No, no, no. I that's one of the great shame of my life is that I, I always berate myself for not keeping a journal uh, or diary. Are you a perfectionist? I don't know. Maybe you are. I don't know what perfection is. You know. Well, maybe a real perfectionist wouldn't know that. I mean, you seem like you're really hard on yourself, right? We know that. Yeah, you I, know that, right? I am, but I do experience pleasure. You know, in the sense no, that, no, but you know, but those aren't. You, you can be hard on yourself and have a ton of pleasure, I think. It's just that, well, you're a critic. Yeah. <laughs> a natural critic. Yeah, I guess so, which is like, God, is that, is that, I don't know if that's totally depressing or liberating or what. Um, well, I think there's a certain level of consciousness to it. I think it's hard. I don't think, I think it's probably rewarding. Like if you're a critical person. Uh, I was brought up in a very critical environment. I have a tendency towards a lot of criticism. I like my criticism too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's a harder place to be because you're always dealing with what went wrong and what could be improved. But I think there's a lot of benefits for it from it because it can raise your standards of what's acceptable. And I think it drives you to improve. Do you do you feel a lot of drive to improve? Like when you yeah. look back, are you like, my God, look what I've gotten better at and yeah. all that stuff? I do. I feel like that's absolutely beautiful the way you articulated it. And also, I think the other side of criticism is like, to me, it's just as simple as let's talk about it. Okay. You know what I realized? I have to interrupt you because uh-huh. we are done here. We got thirty seconds, and I want to remind people. Thank you so much. You're thank awesome. You. Uh, so anyway, go to davidcody.com. That's David C O T E, uh, and get your copy of Moulin Rouge, the musical story. Broadway spectacular, and check out my archives. Okay, Doctor Lisa gives a shit. I'm here every.